like to thank Taylor Duke, our youth pastor, for preaching for me last weekend and talking about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Now, I know we had a little bit of nasty weather, and it kept some of you off the road and away from church last weekend. If that's you, let me encourage you, if you haven't done so already, go and listen to that sermon or watch it online. You can watch it on our website. You can watch it on the app. You can watch it on Facebook. There's a lot of ways you can do that. But let me just encourage you to be in the habit that if you have to miss church, to connect in, through technology and don't fall behind in our current series or any weekend here and stay connected. And that's what I love about technology is that we have those um, avenues to continue to stay connected as a church family if we have to miss. Now, speaking about our current series, many of you are aware we are trucking right, right along in the Gospel of John. Now, John's Gospel was an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. It was written by one of his very closest friends. The Gospel of John is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Together, they tell the story of all kinds of things that Jesus did and what he taught and what his purpose was. And so we are studying through the Gospel of John, and we are right now in our study very early in Jesus' ministry. We know that John the Baptist was the first one to point out Jesus. He's like, behold, the Lamb of God, that's him. And, and that was John's job, to point people to the coming of the Messiah. John said, it's not me, it's that guy over there. And then we learn next that a couple of John the Baptist disciples, they say, well, if, if that's who we're supposed to follow, we will go follow them. And then a couple of their brothers came and joined them. And then we learn the very next day, another one joined. The day after that, another one joined. And, and all of a sudden, we have six followers of Jesus. I call them the first witnesses, the first ones to say there's something special about him. I am going to follow him. Now Jesus and these six followers, we learned that they wind up at a wedding one day. We don't know whose wedding it was, but they were invited guests of this wedding. And we also learned that they run out of wine. And so Jesus at this wedding is going to perform his very first miracle. He's going to take ordinary water and he's going to turn it into wine. And, and the amazing thing about this miracle is that pretty much everybody at the party did not know that that had happened. I mean, they, they, they were just unaware. In fact, their conclusion, you saved the best wine to last. They had no idea that Jesus saved the day. However, the Bible tells us that Jesus's disciples knew it and then the very next verse what's it tell us they saw this miracle and they believed in Jesus now I'm gonna be honest with you about something if I was in their shoes and for the last few days I've been following Jesus around then I've been listening to what he says and and I'm going John says he's the Messiah I think he's the Messiah I'm gonna follow him and then I watch him before my very eyes change ordinary water into this incredible wine. I'm going to tell you, that miracle would move me into the camp of faith. That would move me to a point of belief. And that's what it did for these disciples. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this. Obviously, I've been studying through John with you and, and, and in depth. And it's not a surprise to me at all that John would record this miracle for everyone else for all time to read. A, a miracle that helped solidify the faith of these first witnesses, these first six disciples. The whole point, you might recall, of why John even wrote this account of the life of Christ was so that people would read it and they would believe. And he even tells us that at the very end of his letter, John chapter 20. He says, I'm writing this 
so that people will believe in Jesus Christ the Messiah. So since that's John's main purpose for writing the account of Jesus' life, it makes sense that John would include a miracle that helped his followers have faith and belief. It makes sense why John would include a conversation at night between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. This is the story that Taylor focused on last week. And what did he say? What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. Do you remember? He's saying, Nicodemus, a transformation has to take place in your life. Faith must be present. It doesn't work without faith. It's got to be something that dwells from within. It's like being born again. And he's telling Nicodemus this. We get one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. John 3, 16. He's like, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, what? Believes. That whoever believes, whoever has faith, Whoever goes through this spiritual transformation, this being born again, what's going to happen for these people? They're not going to perish, but they'll have eternal life. So Nicodemus, like the first six disciples, would have to choose to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's no different than the choice that each and every one of us has made or will have to make in our lives. We are confronted. John is confronting us. What do you believe about Jesus? This is who he is. These are the things that he's done. But do you believe? This is the whole point of John's gospel. So John's gospel stresses faith. And then we come across another one of these faith, do you believe conversations that Jesus has in John chapter 4. If you have not turned there already, would you open your Bibles to John chapter 4? You can take out the app and you can follow along on this message if you'd like. All the scriptures are listed there as well. But we're going to be in John chapter 4 this evening. John is going to share another conversation that Jesus has while he's traveling with his disciples while they stop for a drink at a well. Now Jesus is alone for just a few minutes and he ends up having this very unexpected conversation with this woman who is also there to get some water from the very same well. Now the conversation that John is going to share with us is a conversation that absolutely changes this woman's life. And this conversation that Jesus has with her is going to serve as a catalyst for change for that entire community. You got your Bibles open? Let's look at John chapter 4 and let's start in verse 4. It starts like this. Now he had to go, he is Jesus, that's who we're talking about. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Okay, so most likely, Jesus and his disciples, they've been traveling for about six hours. And it's starting to get hot, as it does in that part of the world. It gets hot around noon. And so they stop at this place where there's a well, and there's some water there. It's just kind of like a breather. It's like, hey, let's stop here and rest. And so they, they stop. There's nothing unusual about what we're reading until you get to verse 7. What does it say? 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. A woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let me give you a little context so you can understand why she is asking Jesus what to us is a very strange question. She's like, why are you asking me? Well, here's the deal. Back in this day when Jesus was walking on the earth, um, he is a Jewish person. All of his traveling companions are Jewish people. He's in an area full of Jewish people. And so there was, and for a Jewish person back in Jesus' day, they really saw the world through a specific set of lenses. And those lenses saw three kinds of people. The first kind of people were Jewish people. Now, you can trace this all the way back to Abraham. This is the nation that God raised up through Father Abraham and tracks through most of the Old Testament, their story. The Israelites is what they're also known as. They're also called the Hebrews in the Bible. But we know them simply today as the Jewish people. So there are the Jews. There's God's chosen people. That's one group of people. And then there's another group of people in their eyes. They're called Gentiles. Now, just to be very simplistic, a Gentile was anybody who was not a Jew. So when you read things in the Bible, it says Jews and Gentiles, it's just a distinction of how people saw themselves back in that day. You have God's chosen people and everyone else who isn't. But there's this one other category of people that most Jewish people saw, and they were called Samaritans. Now, do you know what a Samaritan is? A Samaritan would be somebody who is the offspring of a Jewish person and a Gentile person. So a Jewish person decided to marry outside of the faith, so they marry a Gentile, and their children were kind of half Jew and half Samaritan, and, or excuse me, half Gentile, and they're called Samaritans. Now for the most part, this is tracked all over the Bible, you can see this, for the most part, Jews could not stand Samaritans, and Samaritans couldn't stand Jewish people, and they pretty much tried to steer clear of each other. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told of the good Samaritan? Do you remember when there was a Jewish man who was robbed on a road and left for dead, and then one of his Jewish brothers came by and said, nah, I'm, I'm not going to help. Then another Jewish brother came by and said, I'm not going to help you. I mean, these are like, we're the same people. But then a Samaritan comes by, has compassion on this man on the road, helps him, bandages his wounds, pray, uh, pays for his care. Is this coming back to you? And, and, and Jesus says, who was the guy's neighbor? Because that was the whole reason for why he told the parents. And people's mouths hit the ground because Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. So with that background, it kind of makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Why she would say, hmm, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. What are you talking to me for? Not only that, she adds, like, like it wasn't obvious, but she says, and I'm also a woman. You know, we can study in our history books just a little bit, and we learn what was kind of common practice for Jewish men back in this day. They would not, they would be rarely seen with a woman, and many times they would not even be seen out in public with their own wives, let alone talk to, it was a very segregated culture, and so she's just kind of bringing this stuff up, saying, I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, why are you asking me for anything? So when Jesus initiated this conversation, it's a little bit easy to understand now of why she was so baffled. 
But I'll tell you something that we can tell right here about Jesus early in his ministry. Jesus valued people on a level that was really not seen back in this day and age. And he was, he was not so much concerned with social norms like other people were. He simply saw another person and he valued that person for who she was. Now, wouldn't that be a trip if that was still the case today? Wouldn't that be a trip? To live in a world where people were valued simply because they were another human being. Where they came from, well, that didn't matter. That had nothing to do with your value. The color of your skin, non-issue, non-issue. Your education level, well, that wasn't anything that would divide people. That's not, I mean, your value is not based on your education. How about your income? Whether you have a job that pays a lot of money or a little, or you have a lot in the bank, or you don't have much, none of those things had any bearing on your value in other people's eyes. Your body type had no bearing. The way you talk, the way you dress, the way you look had no bearing at all on anyone in the world about your value. And I truly believe that this is how Jesus saw people every single day he walked the earth. He saw people, not what society saw. He saw people. And since Jesus is God that's been well established already in John, it was God who said back in the Old Testament that, uh, hey, do not look on the outside. That's what man looks at. I, God, look on the inside. I look straight into the heart. And everything about Jesus' ministry says that is how he saw people, and that's how he sees this woman. And if you have any doubt at all, then I invite you to, to spend time reading the rest of the Gospels. And when you get to the part about the resurrection, pause, get down on one knee, and thank the good Lord that he looked into your heart and not on the outside that had to be redeemed because of sin and abuse. But he looked at your heart and said, I want you to be a part of my family because I value you. Now, this is how Jesus responded to her hesitancy. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? This Samaritan woman thinks that Jesus is still just talking about water. And let's be honest, we would too. We would not dial in that Jesus is talking about something so much more significant than quenching your thirst. Jesus is trying to change the subject from physical water and being thirsty to a spiritual discussion about her faith in God. And she's like, if you knew who I was, I know you don't know me, but if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for something far more significant than a drink of water. She's like, where are you going to get this living water? She's still thinking about the water. She's not thinking about what Jesus is thinking about. So she goes back in history. She goes, well, Jacob gave us this well. He drank from it. All of his kids drank from it. Everybody's been drinking from this well. Are, are you saying that you're greater than Jacob, that, that somehow you can offer better water than what we can get right here? Do you know something that I don't know? She's not dialing in to what Jesus is saying. 
Verse 13, here's what happens next. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. I can imagine Jesus pointing at the well. Everybody that comes here to take a drink from this well and pulls up water, you're going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is using these kind of comparisons to help people think. He told Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, ah, I'm trying to figure this out. He tells this woman, you need to drink living water. And, and she's trying to figure this out. Jesus is always taking people to the next level. He's taking them to a spiritual place, not a physical reality. He says, living water. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Do you follow the confusion here? She said, well, if there's living water, well, I'll never have to get thirsty again. Ding dong, that means I'll never have to walk down here in the hot day and draw water because you're talking about water that will never run out, aren't you? She's still thinking, and I don't know if she's being sarcastic or not. I tend to think maybe she's being a little sarcastic here. Yeah, give me this water, and I won't have to come down here again, sure. Well, I think her response is kind of a typical one sometimes when we try to have spiritual conversations with people early on. You ever talk to somebody about heaven and their initial response was, yeah, yeah, that'd be nice one day if that's real. Maybe that's her posture. I don't know for sure. Whether she really thinks that Jesus can give her living water and she'll never be thirsty again or she's being sarcastic, I don't know. But what Jesus says to her next is going to rock her to the very inner parts of her soul. This is what Jesus says next. Look at verse 16. He told her, hey, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And then Jesus said to her, remember, they've never met. He said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you have is the man you now have is not your husband now can you just pause and dwell on the exact words that jesus just said to her a complete stranger he knows nothing about her she doesn't think they've never met hey go get your husband let me talk to him i don't have a husband i know you've had five and the one you're with now not your husband and I don't think that Jesus is trying to imply you've been widowed five times. I think Jesus is implying exactly the way it sounds. You're an unfaithful person. You're a sinner. You might be playing the part with this new guy. He's not your husband. And the Bible doesn't tell us if there was a long pause but I tend to think that there is a long pause between verse 18 and what comes next. But whenever she does decide to speak up, she says this, what you have said is quite true. 
We don't know if she had a reputation. We don't know anything about her other than the details that Jesus seems to bring forth out of her story. Can we just say that not everything has gone according to plan for her? That little conversation at Jacob's well went from idle chit-chat to life-changing conversation. I want you to see something about Jesus in this moment that is so important to our faith and what we believe about him. It's right here in this moment we're going to see that Jesus is going to show us his humanity. And what I mean by that is he stopped at that well. Why? Because he was thirsty. He was tired. He experienced everything that every person experienced here. Thirst, tired, fatigue, all of those things. So Jesus shows us his humanity. But at the same time, in this conversation, he shows us his divinity, that he's God. Right? And this conversation shows us again that Jesus and God are one, that while he's human, he's also divine because he knows everything about this woman. How does he know that? It's because he's God. He's both human, he's God, he's, he's, he's got humanity, he's got divinity all wrapped up in one. So this little trip to the well is going to change this woman's life. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. In other words, she's like saying, I can see that you're a fortune teller. I can see you know things. I, I think it's her word that she understood. Prophets foretold things. I, I know there's something special about you is what she's saying. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Ah, so she's not completely ignorant of things, is she? She's got some knowledge about faith. Maybe just a little, but she's got some understanding. She's heard some things. Woman, verse 21, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What Jesus means by that is it was the Jewish people that ushered in the Messiah, and now the Messiah is here standing right in front of her, offering living water, and say, even you Samaritans now can be a part of eternity. It's awesome. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to make a temple sacrifices. That's not going to be a part of your worship. A time is coming when you will worship God in a completely different way. That's what he's saying. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. She knows some stuff. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Can you imagine Jesus? Is like, maybe just a little bit giddy. Hey, I heard about the Messiah and he's going to explain it all. And Jesus is like, that's me. That's me. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So this, the Bible says this Samaritan woman, she left the jar of water there, the well. She went back into town and she told everybody that would listen to her to come out to the well and listen to this guy who didn't even know me, but he told me everything that I had ever done. Now Jesus ends up saying in that community for a couple of days, and it says in verse 41 that many of the Samaritans became Believers, I want you to see something. Early in Jesus' ministry, he's barely gone public with it yet. 
And there are people outside of the Jewish faith who are coming to faith. This sets the tone for the kind of ministry and the kind of mission that Jesus is going to have. Now, now John's emphasis of telling this story, when John was thinking, I need to tell people about Jesus, what do I want to include that's going to help them believe? So he writes this story about the woman at the well because it's all about belief. What will help you believe in Jesus? What are our takeaways from this? What do we take away from this story about this woman at the well whose whole life was changed from a single conversation with Jesus? It tells me this, and if you're taking notes, this is one of my personal takeaways from this encounter of Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well. The first one is this. This story reminds me that no one is too far gone. Nobody is too far gone for the Lord to reach and redeem. See, the Jews saw three types of people. Do you remember what they were? Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans. Jesus only sees those who are with him and those who are not yet with him. How, how do you see people today? Jesus only sees those that would one day follow him that need saving. He doesn't see what society sees. Jesus, why are you talking to her? Don't waste your time on her. We don't do that, you know. What, what good could come from this? This is what society says, even about people today. And we label them this and that, and Jesus just did not seem to care about society's norms. Jesus did not seem to mind that he was talking to someone who most un undoubtedly had a reputation as being unfaithful, probably a homewrecker. Society says, Jesus, you're breaking something. This is taboo. You don't talk to, let alone anybody like that, but you really don't talk about somebody like that. There's things about Jesus you need to pay attention to in between the subtle things that we wouldn't catch probably on an average read. Jesus is breaking all the rules. And at the heart of it is because no one is too far gone. Jesus is going to have none of this social norm garbage. One way of looking at this would be to say that, that Jesus crossed a border, if you will, a boundary into what many people would consider enemy territory and started talking with the woman. Why? Because everyone matters in God's eyes. No one is disqualified from God's love. No one's ever too far gone. And man, my takeaway is this. God wants us to do the same. Jesus didn't see her or anyone else as disqualified, but he saw it as an incredible opportunity for someone to become a child of God. Now, the disciples, when they came back to the well, they wrestled with the same things that I think still Christians wrestle with today. They're like, hmm, what's going on here? The disciples, you're going to see this just a minute, they had a very much an us and them mentality. There's this other part of the text we haven't read yet. Look at verse 27. Jump down to there. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Now, I think they know well enough. Don't ask Jesus. We just watched him turn water into wine the other day. I guess if he wants to talk to her, let him. But they're confused by this. They were suspicious. Their guards were up. Those of you who are new Christians may not 
understand completely what I'm about to share with you, but those of you who have been Christians for a long time, you'll probably get it. And if you've been a Christian, you grew up in church, you'll undoubtedly know what I'm talking about. I would say this, that if making disciples is not the priority in somebody's life, if making disciples is not the church's mission, if church and being a Christian becomes other things and, and you're not focused on making disciples, reaching and saving the lost, aligning yourself with the same mission as Jesus, then the longer that you're a Christian, the more insulated you will tend to become. And you can develop what I think the disciples are wrestling with. That's them, and this is us. Now, I don't want to step on anybody's toes here. That's not my intention by saying this. But somewhere, the church, and I don't think it was on purpose at all. I think it was good intentions. But somewhere along the line, Christians kind of changed their view a little bit. Instead of being the light into the, in the lost world, bringing Jesus into communities, being the salt of the earth, all the things that we're supposed to be, we kind of took a step back from that. And we said, we don't like what's happening here, so we're going to do our own thing. And we started to create Christian schools. And we have Christian music. And we're going to have a Christian business. And we're going to separate. And, and in doing so, and I'm not dogging any of that stuff because I'm a product of all of those things. And, and I love Christian music and Christian education, all of that. But somewhere the temptation is when we insulate ourselves and say, this is what we do, not what you do, we're no different than the disciples who walked up on Jesus at the well and were like, why are you talking to her? I don't get it. What value could come from this conversation? That's really what the disciples were thinking. And like I said, I love all the Christian stuff we do. My radio's tuned in to Air One. It's pretty much what I listen to. I love it. But it can potentially create walls very much like the walls the disciples had that could not see what Jesus was doing. I'll tell you a story. I know I'm a little long on time already, but like I've shared with you, it's Saturday night. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it does matter. It matters to everyone downstairs with your children. I can tell you that. <laughs> but I remember my very first preaching ministry um, which also is the shortest ministry I've ever had in my life, and you'll know why when I tell you this story. I, I remember I was at a, a board meeting, and it was a very small church, and uh, the house right next to our church just got purchased. It was for sale for when it got purchased, and the people that bought the house and moved into it was a lesbian couple. And I remember at the next board meeting, and obviously, this conversation came up, and I did not like what I heard. Let's be honest, sin is sin, I get it. But lost is also lost, and saved is also saved. Sin is sin. Last time I checked, all sin needs to be sacrificed on the cross, right? I did not like what I heard. I did not like the tone and I said to the leadership of that church that night, I said, I'm going to go tomorrow morning and I'm going to knock on their door and I'm going to welcome them to our community and invite them to church. Anybody got a problem with that? And I'll never forget 
never, as long as I live, will I forget the answer I got. One of the elders in our church stood up and he hit the table as hard as he could. And he said, you absolutely will not do that. We forbid you from doing that. We don't want any of that here. Now forget the sin for just a minute. Analyze the heart. What was he saying? He's saying those people don't matter. He's saying they're too far gone. He's saying their sin is too entrenched for God to redeem. That's what he was saying. That's not what Jesus thought. Never do I see that in Jesus' life. Friends, I'm not soft on that sin. Boy, I don't ever want to be hard on people. I believe Jesus can redeem anybody. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him. I kind of think of it like this. Let's uh, change the subject. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, that's their word for teacher, eat something. Maybe, maybe one of the early disciples thought, he's not well. He's, he needs to eat some food. Eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And now all of a sudden his disciples don't know what he's talking about. Then his disciples said to each other, could somebody else have brought him food? Who would have done that? They don't know what he's talking about. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say. Another very significant verse in the Bible. Four more months and then the harvest, which is a common thing people would say. Oh, we've got about four more months to the harvest. Very agricultural community. Isn't that not what you say? And then Jesus said, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe right now for harvest. See, the disciples have spent much of the afternoon in that city, the city filled with lost people, and all they came back with was lunch. The only thing they'd seen was the strangeness of the Samaritans. The only thing that they had felt was contempt for having spent the afternoon in this sinful Samaritan village. And Jesus commanded them, hey, look at where you're at. Open your eyes. Don't have a mentality, hey, four months from now, things are going to change and we're going to have a harvest. Said, no, 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 no. Look right now. The harvest is ready. Boy, I tell you, if that's not a mentality as we as a church need to have, especially if Jesus were to say that to us today, and we look at our community, there's none of this four more months from now, things are going to really change here, and we got some work to do four months from now, friends. We got work to do today. We got work to do right now. Here's the second thing. I'll go fast. Second thing, my takeaway is always be ready. Always be ready for these kind of moments. Jesus could have easily taken a drink of water, said, thanks, shalom, and moved on. But he saw an opportunity to reach out to somebody, and he took that opportunity. And when he reached one for the Lord, it changed the whole community. Friends, you've never locked eyes with somebody that the Lord didn't love. Seize these moments. Finally, I would say this, my takeaway, and I'll be done. Take a risk. 
for once in our lives, church. Let's take a risk. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give up so that the next Samaritan woman at the well can find grace and redemption through Jesus Christ? What part of your pride are you willing to lay down? You're going to risk something for that so one more person can come to Jesus? What would you be willing to risk financially so one more person could not come to know Jesus? And I wonder, are we risk takers in this place? See, I think Jesus took a risk. But he valued the person and what they could become more than any reputation that he might get dinged on. No one's ever too far gone. Always be ready to seize these opportunities. And friends, in Jesus' name, let's never be afraid to take a risk.